0: Hi everyone, welcome to uh, another edition of female South Asian Student Spaces. I'm Raisa Vikram, acting editor, and I'll be moderating this session. Uh, I'm joined today by Namrata Raju, India director of Equidem Research and Consulting, and Padra Sharma, a journalist with the New York Times. Um, Welcome, thanks for joining us today. And to get a little bit into what our topics could be, um, as you know right now the FIFA World Cup is being broadcast around the world and we're here to talk about one of these that has kind of emerged around this mega sporting event, um, which is mostly in relation to the migrant workers who built the World Cup stadiums. So both of our speakers have done work on this uh, particular issue and we're looking forward to um, discussing this today. Uh, welcome everyone, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us uh, today, Namrata, and for taking the time to kind of talk to us and go into you know the research that you've been doing. Um, so just to start off, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about how the Qatar World Cup is, uh, you know, the most expensive at around USD 220 billion. Um, Uh, but your report has kind of revealed some of the um, hidden costs and indeed uh, the outright exploitation and abuse that happened behind the scenes when it came to building these stadiums. So to start off with, could you tell us some of the key things and statistics you discovered um, while you were talking to these migrant workers and, uh, you know, which you published in your report
1: Certainly. And first of all, thanks so much for having this discussion today. Uh, Now, first, when we talk about our report from Equidem's side, uh, it is a culmination of 18 months worth of work where investigators who are from uh, basically migrant worker communities themselves collected this data. And it is against a larger backdrop where there is a very high fear of reprisal amongst workers for speaking out about the experiences that they have been undergoing. Uh, It's also a context where trade unions are banned. So this is some important context setting um, for all of us here on the call. In terms of what happened with this investigation, uh, our team spoke to close to a thousand workers during this period, and all of these workers were Africans and South Asians, essentially. And uh, what workers alleged uh, predominantly were issues such as nationality-based discrimination first and then issues such as wage theft. So you have workers many months uh, on end without being paid their monthly salaries or in some cases facing wage deductions. Uh, Then you have situations where workers were uh, facing a lot of overwork and again, not being paid for this um and and again there are a number of other r- labor rights violations that have come up uh, over the course of our investigation uh, i'll drop the link to our report as well in the chat after uh, we finish this conversation
0: thank you and yes i found your report um quite comprehensive. you know it really went into a lot of these kind of hidden issues um and covered a lot of interesting issues it looks like uh Padra hasn't been able to connect yet. So um, I'll just continue uh, chatting with you, I think. So um, to kind of get into a little bit of, um, there was a little bit of a counter narrative that we saw in response to some of the criticism around, you know, the kind of violations that were uncovered, um, you know, around building these stadiums. Um, so there was this kind of narrative that we saw come up talking about how uh, any criticism of Qatar, especially coming from the West, is hypocritical. And uh, we indeed saw uh, FIFA President Gianni, you know, referencing this and also making um, this speech where he at one point said he feels like a migrant worker. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, as someone who has worked and researched on migrant workers in the South Asian region, what are your thoughts on this? And, um, you know, what, there's there's even been some media reporting, talking about how holding the World Cup is going to help unpack colonial myths. So in that context, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Thanks so much, Raisa. I think that's an excellent question. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, The first, though, uh, since you brought up um, uh, Mr. Infantino's comments, I think actually it's quite appalling. So to be quite direct about it, I think it's a slap in the face of every migrant worker who's South Asian or African who has worked in those stadiums. So if Mr. Infantino really knows what it means to be a migrant worker, then I assume he has been in situations where he hasn't been paid for months on end. Uh, or he has been in situations where he's worked in extreme heat and then hasn't had access to water. Right? like uh, This is a context where workers have faced very egregious labor rights violations so that's the first thing. And uh, to speak of this in such a flippant manner, whether it is in terms of migrant workers or any of the other minority groups that he alluded to is nothing short of appalling. Um, even when he re- he alluded to the LGBTQ plus community, uh, there are plenty of LGBTQ plus people from both the Khalid and the larger Middle East who have been fighting for their rights for many decades now, right? Like So, uh, uh, I was actually personally incensed when I heard some of these comments as well Uh, and one of the things to add to this is uh, uh, in addition to everything else uh, there have been a lot of critiques not just coming from uh, western human rights groups a lot of actors from across the global south who are human rights actors including organizations like Equidem have been raising this issue so if he talks about a mindset is he looking to recolonize this narrative because we all come from countries which know what it means to have been colonized and are still in the process of decolonizing ourselves in some ways. Right? Like, so uh, this is one whole segment of it. The other aspect of it is um, if you are how the Western media has covered it. And I do think that that is an interesting perspective. Uh, one of the things, again, that worried me is if you, for example, look at the LGBTQ plus issue. People have often alluded to the fans who are going in to visit Qatar. But what about the Qataris who have been there again? Uh, Or do people think that there are no queer queer folk in Qatar? Uh, And again, so I think that it is important to remember that uh, rights violations are rights violations no matter where they are in the world. So uh, whether it is Infantino or the Qatari authorities, they can't fob off rights violations that we have uncovered, Uh, Equidem has uncovered in this massive investigation, just by... uh, uh, you know, crying, crying wolf in in this situation. It's it's quite inexcusable. Uh, and one last point I wanted to add is that, look, Qatar has indeed put reforms in place, which is which is something to be applauded. So ever since the 2017 ILO-Qatar technical cooperation agreement, there have been a raft of reforms that have been introduced. But the pro- these remain on paper. We see um, so many workers facing, as I said, whether it's wage theft or whether it is overwork or whether it is just simply working in conditions of extreme heat uh, and, and not having uh, sufficient rest. These are the kind of uh, issues that workers have alleged. Thank you.
0: Um, I agree that was uh, quite a bizarre speech for me to see it turned up even on my, um, my Instagram feed and I thought it was quite bizarre. And the point that you made uh, right at the end, I think, uh, kind of leads neatly into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is uh, precisely about the labor reforms which have been touted. Um, could you go a little bit more into what these, uh, you know, these improvements and these labor reforms are? And uh, you said that they are actually on paper, which is uh, exactly what I wanted to get into. Um, so, yeah, could you go a little bit more into that Well talking about the kafala system which i think you dealt with um in your in your report
1: thank you so we talk about the kafala system i think the important thing to first ask is what is the system so this system is essentially a sponsor a sponsorship system where you have the kafil or employer who's the sponsor of the worker and it is a two-tier labor market where you have one set of laws and policies and frameworks which cater to workers who are nationals, and an entirely different set of these who cater to workers who are non-nationals. Now this system of course exists uh, via various permutations and combinations of their own national laws in each of these different states in the larger Arab Gulf. Um, In the Qatari case, there have, um, and again, this is something to be applauded, there have been a lot of reforms, uh, especially since 2018. And uh, some examples are, um, one of the issues has been recruitment, because workers have been paying these exorbitant recruitment fees. So one is uh, setting up uh, Qatar visa centers to uh, regulate recruitment. The other is, Freeing up the requirement for, uh, you know, the worker to take permission from the employer before they change jobs, Uh, then still another is uh, establishing a non-discriminatory minimum wage, Uh, and, and they've even passed some standards to prohibit outdoor work during extreme heat, so this is just a handful, there are many more reforms that have come into place. But most unfortunately, what we saw in our report, what workers alleged, uh, was that uh, their experience is a far cry from the um, image that is being touted of reform. So uh, on the one hand, and and I do think that reform processes essentially have, just to, to simplify it, basically they have two layers. The first layer is implementing policies and frameworks and ensuring those protections are there for workers. And then the second is actually having a governance system to make sure that that actually occurs in practice. So uh, unfortunately, the second place is where we see the big loophole. Uh, One example is uh, there were workers in our report who alleged that um, uh, you know, the companies, all of these construction companies would move workers geographically away from any specific work site when they knew that the FIFA inspection committees were to be visiting that day. So essentially bust them, they would move them away elsewhere. And uh, it's like essentially literally placing a physical barrier between workers and being able to use uh, whatever mechanisms there are in place. Uh, and this includes the Qatari Royal family's HBK group. Um, which workers alleged, that, where workers alleged this happened. So it is some pretty serious stuff we're talking about here.
0: You raised this point about um, discrimination based on Nazi. Um and I found that quite interesting because from what I could tell, there were certain, there was a certain hierarchy within the workers and even, indeed, even between kind of South Asian workers as far as I could tell. Um, could you lay out like how that what that hierarchy is, and, you know, you know, how it was decided which workers received kind of better treatment and why?
1: Sure. And and thank you again, that's a really good question. So uh, since I am uh, someone who has a sweet tooth, I'll talk a little bit about cake, but not to make light of this matter. Right. So uh, when you think of a cake, which is tiered, uh, that's That's essentially what we're talking about when it comes to nationality based discrimination. So within this tiered cake, people who are at the bottom uh, are the ones who are treated the worst. And the people at the top are the ones who are treated better. Now, uh, and this is, uh, uh, on the one hand, you have a set of laws and frameworks and all of that, which allows for this to happen, which is what I was saying Qatar has been reforming. And then the second is you have actual practices that have been in place for a very long time now. Uh, this has been happening since the influx of migrants, uh, and for example, from South Asia into the region, since the oil boom of the 1970s, 1980s, right? So uh, now the way this pans out can be in different types of things. So the one, one example is a worker may get paid less if they are a Kenyan who is black uh, versus even an Indian who is brown. But, uh, uh, so, so that's one example. Uh, and they have these types of systems versus Indians, versus Nepalis versus... Uh, Um, uh, Kenyans, Ethiopians. uh, So all of these workers is facing a different guise or different hue of this discrimination. Uh, Other examples, now speaking directly from the report, there were some instances where workers alleged that uh, they were treated differently uh, because uh, uh, although they were all employed in the same job or in the same capacity, only workers from certain nationalities would be expected to do the riskier jobs. So this is another example. So essentially, it's like this cake. So if you're a woman, again, you fall at the bottom tier of this cake. Uh, Your skin color or nationality renders bottom tier of this cake. And and that's essentially how I would say it is structured. So FIFA,
0: the organization itself, has been kind of dogged by these allegations of corruption, including money laundering. um, And some of it specifically centered around the Qatar bid. What are your thoughts on this and on FIFA's role, particularly as it pertains to migrant workers, if any?
1: now my area of expertise is more on the labor side and we'll see from the labor perspective fortunately from the path and tone FIFA is taking at the moment they are what they are claiming not to be you know uh, in the sense that uh, he made this comment Infantino made this comment about colonizers and Europeans should not see anything but by taking that tack it's actually sports washing and labor washing is what uh, this amounts to at this moment Um, and uh, one of our uh, larger concerns is the role that fifa has played in this context uh, are they looking to be a colonial patriarchal organization in an era which is still 2022 so one would hope that it is more forward looking uh, and and it is too late to do that uh, so this is why one of our asks of fifa has been to sort of uh, make sure that all of these workers who have not been paid for so long Finally, get their dues or the, the, the dues that are owed to them um, given back to them. Uh, and we're hoping that this will still be done. So I think FIFA ha- is actually at its moment of reckoning where it can look forward and say, are we going to be an institution which is forward looking, which looks to the future? Where in 2022 we should have institutions that are, as you said, uh, Raisa, like, beyond borders. Uh, which which uh, don't discriminate against migrant workers just because of uh, coming from Asia or Africa or the color of their skin or their gender. And unfortunately, by the role and the uh, the sort of tone they are speaking in, in which they are speaking at the moment, uh, it's a far cry from what it could be. They could still leave a positive legacy.
0: Thanks, Amrata. And a quick follow-up question based on that. Um, so there's been this uh, hashtag uh, pay up fifa that's trending so a bit of a loaded question but do you think that there's a case to be made for reparations either from fifa or even the qatar government
1: i think there's definitely a case to be made for uh, reparations because these are workers who as i said they are the ones who's uh, who have really gone into the mortar of these stadiums in which we are watching the World Cup being played; these are air-conditioned stadiums. Uh, in contexts where, uh, the, like uh, in the Qatari context, which is i mean, impacted by climate as well, like much of the rest of the world, you know, it's, it's situations of extreme heat. And despite all of that, these workers have not just not been paid their basic wages, uh, or in some cases, not been paid their overtime or end-of-service benefits. Now, you alluded to Raisa earlier the cost. You know, uh, of of this entire uh, phenomenon, because it is a phenomenon. It's an economic phenomenon, really, and. Um... Uh, what we think is that workers should be paid so one of our big asks of FIFA ourselves as well as a number of our fellow uh, labor rights organizations from around the world um, have been to set up a compensation fund for workers so that they can still get compensated because a lot of these workers for example who have who are back in South Asia have come home now And they had families dependent on these wages. So uh, there is a knockover effect that could actually even last a generation. And uh, that's something we'll also have to keep an eye on in the region. So, uh, And from the Qatari perspective, um, uh, one of the big worries is that there is no trade unionism uh, because these trade unions are banned and workers have no voice. So on that front, we've been asking to a migrant workers centre. Thanks for that. And yeah, that
0: leads into the next question I was going to ask, which is that, if you could go a little bit into, um, I believe you made a number of uh, recommendations, apart from reparations. Um, So, yeah, if you could go into what more you think could be done to protect the rights of these workers.
1: Thanks, Raisa. So, I think a lot of it were links actually to your previous question uh, and what we were just discussing, which is that there should really be some avenue for migrant workers to voice their experiences. Uh, because of the uh, trade unions being heavily curtailed, that avenue doesn't exist at the moment. Uh, so a uh, good place to start would be to set up this migrant workers centre where workers are actually able to voice what they're experiencing without fear of punitive action, fear of reprisal, uh, because that is what workers are worried about. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be to continue on the pathway of reform that again, I must say has already commenced. Uh, so, So it is questioning now we have begun this journey on our pathway to reform? What does it look like? Uh, How can we be leaders on this front in the larger region? Uh, Both Qatar and FIFA actually have a moment here. This is an opportunity, and I hope they don't lose this opportunity to to signal to the rest of the world what we could be, what they could be, what any sporting event uh, of this size could look like. Um, And one of that is continuing on the pathway to reform you know, and and making sure that there is a governance system which actually checks that now whatever laws and policies are in place are actually being implemented. Uh, So I would say that those are the key things to look at from the Qatari perspective as well as from FIFA's perspective.
0: Uh,
1: kind of linked to that. Do you think that, um, I mean, what do you think
0: should uh, also change on the part of, for example, labor employment agencies, you know, the people who kind of send...
1: Uh, these workers out? So, e- even with labor employment agencies, now this is part of a larger, interesting discussion on recruitment and recruitment processes. So, from the Qatari perspective, now they've set up these visa centers, which is again a good thing because it is uh, a stab at the regulation of recruitment processes. Now, I think that what we need to keep doing is working on this, right? Like, what come uh, also thinking about what are the different stakeholders in this larger. Uh, in this larger picture. So one of the stakeholders is, of course, companies. So we also need to hold companies accountable for recruitment processes. One example of a very simple thing that a company could do, which I don't think actually takes too much time, especially for some of these large companies which have capital at their disposal. So it's things like just vetting the recruitment agent, making sure you're doing a regular vetting process with the recruitment agent, or asking workers once they emigrate, how was your immigration process uh, did you pay any fees did you get reimbursed making sure that workers do get reimbursed if they have paid a fee as per what we call the employer pays principle uh, this bill should be actually footed by the employer which is the fee related to recruitment and one last thing i will add is in terms of this larger question of recruitment agents and sub-agents. I think from, uh, there's a lot of great research from around the world that has been coming out on this. uh, And I think that we need to keep doing that because Uh, it it is also not that simple to say that all of these recruitment agents are fraudulent. There are many who are, but then there are also many who are actually sort of forming this or playing this essential migrant workers uh, to help them go overseas in search uh, search of a better future, in search of, uh, you know, essentially better wages and uh, better livelihoods. Thanks for that, Namrata.
0: And um, I also, I mean, not to dwell too much or uh, so only on the negative um, there were also you know points in the report where you spoke about good practices followed by some employers as well um, but I was curious to kind of know um, why the experiences of workers were so different in the different work sites and just out of curiosity with the, uh, what were some of the kind of measures that employers kind of prioritized and were you know the of the wind of did implement good practices.
1: Thank you. So this is an important point to raise as well. Uh, There were definitely some good practices that came up in our report and you can see the companies with which these are linked on our website, uh, which has the full text of our report as well. Now, uh, some examples of what companies were doing, which could go a long way, is just making sure that your grievance mechanism is working. Right? Like so one is that you have a grievance mechanism. Then the second is that, that when I say that grievance mechanism is means that when a worker uh submits wins, there is actually a fair process of review that goes into that. And we're also talking about a system in which we need to think about questions such as worker accessibility. For example, are workers able to access a grievance portal or mechanism or system in their own language? Uh, Are they comfortable? Do they trust it? And um, these are systems, again, that we need to think about in the longer run. So companies which actually had good practices had at least started PATH. Uh, So this is one example. Uh, Other examples are companies which were actually thinking about health and safety in a more holistic way. Where, of course, To protect workers during COVID is important. But this is, and this is not just with this this report, this is a larger issue with migrant workers in general. Uh, It's a more question of a holistic approach to health. Uh, And and companies, again, which were looking to do this, are the ones that started down this pathway of taking these kinds of measures. Uh, to to protect workers. And uh, it would go a long way to think about any of these systems in a more holistic way, whether it's grievances, whether it's health and safety uh, or whatever have you.
0: Thanks, Namrata. Um, I'm going to um, ask people to please DM us if you have any questions. Um, We're not going to be giving uh, the mics to people, but please either DM us, um, either... Himal South Asians account or myself, or you can uh, tweet at us uh, with your questions and uh, we'll be taking up a few of them. Um, In the interim, I did have like a question that I was curious to know. Um, You know, there was something that was also kind of reported on in the context of the World Cup were instances of harassment, especially sexual harassment experienced by female migrant workers. Um, For example, I believe there was a report I read um, who were, you know, working in Qatar. Um, So were there any instances of this or other forms of gender-based harassment um, and or violence that uh, you encountered while you were researching this report?
1: So the gender angle always crops up in various ways. Uh, Equoram actually released a report some months ago as well on, as you said, actually the hotel sector. So this was on FIFA partner hotels in Qatar and the wider region. Uh, And and there were, so you can again uh, access this report on our website. Uh, But there, I remember there was uh, uh, some workers alleging their uh, situations of gender violence. Uh, And now, I think that if we step back a little, this is a question in general for the larger labor market. Uh, so the way we see gender cropping up uh, as researchers on this region for some years now is in multiple ways. So the the one on the one hand, you have situations where uh gender crops up in how a woman is employed so uh it, some jobs may be deemed more suitable for men than women so that's one example where you face gender cropping up then you have situations of course as you were alluding to Risa like, raisa where uh this actually comes uh, into the form of, it takes the guise of women experiencing different forms of violence, actually. It could be physical, it could be verbal, it could be sexual. And um, there are definitely cases where women experience that and report that. There are so many reports, not just in these sectors that we're talking about right now, for example, in hospitality, but it even comes up in cases of domestic work, for instance. And again, there's a lot of work being done on this, where you see the line between a woman's workplace uh, and her home essentially being blurred. Uh, And on account of that, uh, them being rendered more of different forms of exploitation. So gender crops up there as well. And then you have other issues, for example, gender cropping up in uh, the guise of women being paid differently from men, Uh, or even things like uh, migration hurdles being more than men or just essentially different from men. Um, because, uh, my my and this is more my personal hunch, there's more work to be done on this front, so I must caveat that. Uh, but uh, I think that we should be looking at whether it is more women who tend to emigrate informally as well, uh, because of various migration hurdles that they may face, uh, whether it is procedurally, legally, um, and all of these things, and then simply because of their gender.
0: Thanks for that, Namrata. Uh, and I'm just going to ask a question now that I uh, received through DM. Um, given the fact that uh, you know so many are looking to migrate for work, given economic cons- and crises, um, how big of a problem is trafficking in Qatar, to your knowledge? Um, and did you encounter any people who spoke about trafficking as an issue?
1: Thanks. That's a great question. So um, I think in general. One of the, So first I will refer to what I think we should all be uh, aspiring to, which is safe migration. I'm not someone, despite all of this, whether it's me personally, whether it is Equidem as an organization, whether it is larger labor rights groups in the space, most of us just want to see that migration is safe. Uh, So we don't want to see migration being curtailed in any way. Uh, So that's the first thing to say. Or migration necessarily being promoted too much. It should be a space where this is balanced. Uh, So that's the first thing to remember. The second is, now, this didn't come up really in our report, at least to my knowledge. Uh, So I can't really speak to trafficking in the context of this report. But uh, from, again, and now I'm speaking more as a labor expert, to my knowledge, this does occur in the larger region. There has been quite a bit of research done on this. And there are so many measures that can be taken to think about these issues. So one is, uh, of course, making sure that from any of our ends, so the origin states, whether it's in South Asia, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in other developing states, emerging markets, we're talking about trying to make sure that workers are equipped and empowered. And what that means is, for example, just for starters, them knowing what they're heading into, uh, but without uh, making workers feel like they're terrified and that they can't Uh, cope with it, because I think workers can if they're just given the tools to do so. So that's one example of what can be done. Uh, And then, of course, it goes back to a lot of the things that we were discussing before, which is that if you start to improve things institutionally, uh, legally, procedurally, uh, and from your policy perspective, so that if something does go awry, uh, workers do have Uh, access to protections Uh, and one of the important things to remember in the context of trafficking again is to make sure that we are clamping down now the informal migration side so that means that the process of emigration should be made seamless for workers it should be made that so that workers say okay I want to emigrate this is just a simple way in which I can emigrate this is a safe way in which I can emigrate and then they have access to information in whether it's in um Hindi or um, uh, Telugu or Tamil or uh, whatever or Swahili or whatever languages that they are most comfortable in, we need to be thinking about these things from the perspective of workers who are emigrating. And uh, I would urge any institution who's thinking about these things to think of uh, along those lines. And uh, I, I do think that there has been a lot of work done uh, on this around the world, but uh, just there's just so much more to be done. Thanks
0: for that, Namrata. Um, and I'm just going to ask another question that I am curious to know, um, you know, without obviously revealing any um, personal kind of details. Um, to your knowledge, did any of the workers face any consequences for speaking to you, given, you know, the uh, findings of your report? Um, did you, you know, find any employers trying to identify who had spoken um, to you? And, um what was also the response? Uh, did you face any pushback as well? Um, like once the report went online.
1: So I think your question, Raisa, points to this larger issue that we were discussing before, and that is workers' fear. Diesel. Uh, it's an interesting one. So to my knowledge, again, uh, uh, this has not happened uh, in the context of our report. And we are underscore, uh, because uh, is a labor rights organization and a human rights organization, um, we follow very strict human rights methodology. So this means that everything is central to the worker. So we take a worker first approach to any of this work. Uh, and um, obviously, unless there are certain cases where there are public-facing whistleblowers, uh, all of the workers uh, have their identities protected. And uh, we made sure that this was always the case. Uh, and we also even followed the other side of the human rights methodologies process, which is we wrote to every single company uh, in this report who, who and, and gave them the right of reply. Uh, and if I recall correctly, there are about four companies who responded denying the allegations. And you can see... Uh, all of their responses in detail uh, on our website. So, uh, I mean, I do think that this is an important question, though, because workers are operating in this larger uh, system where they have no avenue to voice what they're going through. I think the important thing to underscore here as well, Raisa, is that some of these workers now uh, are under sort of two levels of surveillance that they're grappling with so one is from the perspective of fearing punitive action for speaking out from the qatari authorities and then the second is from their employers and uh, i do think that over the course of this investigation workers have uh, been worried about uh, uh, you know this uh, even pushback from their employers in terms of for example heightened surveillance even from employer levels Thanks for that,
0: Namrata. And yeah, I mean, I was also just curious about that. And of course, I know that there's definitely ways to kind of protect uh, people. And I'm glad to hear that uh, there wasn't uh, repercussions in that sense. Um, I have like received another uh, question as well. um, And it's about safety hazards. Um, This person is saying that they read about there were some instances you know, of even deaths that happened, you know, whilst building the stadium. They wanted you to go a little bit more into
1: that. Thank thank you for that question. So um, in terms of deaths as well, uh, I think that this is an important discussion as well that has been occurring. So there were two instances or two cases of deaths that workers alleged in our report when speaking to the investigative team. Uh, And this was in relation to the building of stadiums. Now, uh, I think this, though, goes back to a larger issue. Uh, One is that uh, when you look at the figures on deaths and things like that, you have the Supreme Committee reporting that there are 37 deaths that have occurred. And of these three are workplace related. Now, uh, this raises the larger concern regarding what is the transparency? About worker well-being, so there should be greater transparency regarding worker well-being, both when workers are alive and when workers are dead, and I think that that's the important thing to remember when it comes to this discussion on worker deaths. Um, it also points to some larger concerns that uh, the labor rights community has around the world, which is as uh, you know as we were talking about earlier um this is a situation where workers are working in extreme heat it it renders them more vulnerable to uh, uh you know various uh physical problems and it could even result in death so these are important things to bear in mind when it comes to The worker deaths uh, issue. And by and large, I think the main thing to remember is uh, ensuring that there is transparency, ensuring that there is a sharing of data, ensuring that, you know, you're actually submitting, whether it is the Supreme Committee, whether it is the stadiums, whether it is companies, uh, ensuring you're submitting yourselves to uh, transparent review processes to ensure that we are all not wondering how many people died. That should we shouldn't be in this situation where uh, that is so iffy and so so vague, uh, and and again uh, a lot needs to be discussed about what is happening to workers also when they're alive uh, because it shouldn't be a situation where you're damned if you're alive and damned if you're dead. And unfortunately, from what so many workers alleged um, to the Equidem investigative team, it definitely sounds like that was the case.
0: Thanks, Tamrata. Uh That actually ties in. Well, with another question that we got, which is about living conditions, and uh, this person is asking um, if you would be able to go into or whether you knew um, any details about the living conditions of the migrant workers, you know, outside of the workplace, and whether you know what the workers said about um, what their quarters were uh, whilst they were kind of working on the stadiums.
1: Thank you for that. So. Uh, There is uh, information on this again in uh, our report. Um, From what we saw of living conditions, again, there are definitely some best practice examples. So that is important to remember. Uh, But this living conditions issue also points to a lot of questions we have been all uh, thinking about globally during this period, which is, uh, how can you have so many workers uh confined to a room uh in a context where we're also talking about social distancing right like so this is another question because uh, a lot of the workers that we in, who who spoke to equidem's team alleged that they were facing covid 19 exposure during different periods of their work so, This is also another important context for us all to remember that even when we speak of living conditions, we're talking about living conditions, not just on their own, which is important in and of itself, but in connection also to a larger pandemic that was sweeping across the world. So uh, one of the concerns I think that uh, definitely gets raised during this is, uh, are workers able to have social distancing in context where you have so many workers uh, shoved into one room? Uh, And and those are the kind of uh, issues that we're talking about. And I think that this raises a question for Qatar, for certain, But it also raises questions in general for emigrants around the world, in general for companies doing work that hire migrant labor around the world. Um, You know, we should be looking to make sure that workers are protected, whether uh, in their places of accommodation or whether in their workplace, always, because they're playing such a pivotal role in economic development. Um, And uh, things like a pandemic... Uh, throw the importance of that question into even greater relief. So what should our protections look like in the face of a pandemic?
0: Thank you. That's a very important point And yes, something that was uh, dealt with uh, in your in the report as well. Um, and I'm glad we got the chance to go into that. Um, I just wanted to ask also something that um, originally I was going to ask Padra, but since he's having uh, problems co- connecting, I'm curious to hear your perspective as well um so there were there was this instance where um journalists who were seeking accreditation for the world cup uh they were apparently asked to agree to the state's conditions to not film or photograph in these private businesses and industrial zones and i believe the reporters without borders also noted in a statement um that you know they basically said that this alludes to certain sensitive areas where journalists have covered violations of migrant worker rights in the past. Um, So could you, in that context, talk about, you know, the role of the media, and especially the Western media, especially what we were talking about earlier as well, um, what role that's playing uh, in terms of shaping, you know, the discussion about migrant worker rights issues in Qatar?
1: Thanks so much, Raisa, and yes, with you, this would have been a great question for Badra as well. Uh, I am also disappointed he hasn't been able to join, uh, especially after that uh, really piercing uh, article that we have all read. So, uh, Badra, if you're listening, um, you know, uh, congratulations on that. And. Uh, Uh, you know, keep up the wonderful journalism. Uh, So, listen, I'm not a journalist, so I will, again, answer this more from a labor expert lens. Um, Now, an important angle to bear in mind when it comes to access to different areas now i'm not talking uh, from a journalist perspective i'm talking about generally i think that what can happen is that employer surveillance sometimes gets upped in certain areas uh and again this can happen in any context where the power dynamics between employers and workers are so skewed in favor of employers. So one of the things I have personally been concerned during this pandemic, and I really hope that the world looks to change and Qatar looks to change, is uh, things like migrant workers' phones being taken away. Uh, To caveat, I'm not talking now about our report. I'm just saying this in general, because Equidem works on Qatar and the larger region in general, we work on migration in general. And one of the worrying trends we have seen is these workers who, who are such an important cog in um, the economies of so many countries around the world are being placed under, uh, you know, there is there are attempts by employers to control them. So in, in such cases, access to uh, worker camps and things like that becomes even more difficult. So that's one thing that I want to highlight there. Uh, the second thing uh, to highlight, you were talking about the media, uh, and I'm not sure, Isa, if this goes to your point, feel free to jump in um, uh, after I'm done responding, uh, which is that from what I perceive is that first, uh, there are goods and bads. So on the one hand, I see there has been a lot of reporting from Western media, which, frankly, I don't think is particularly well-informed. Uh, I don't think uh, it, it, it makes sense to, uh, I don't know, paint cartoons of uh, people from around the Arab world in a distasteful manner. Uh, I mean, as someone who, I, I am very much South Asian, but the Khalid were home for a very long time. So uh, in some of this, Western media does not understand what migration means. Migration does not mean you adopt one identity. Migration means that you have many identities and you should be allowed to embrace them all, right? And I, unfortunately, I don't see that happening. So I am disappointed by a lot of the media coverage. Um, on the flip side, I have seen a lot of uh, journalists trying to be more informed from wherever they are in the world, including the West. And those are the things that are extremely heartening to see. Uh, so I see this mix of things when it comes from the when it comes to the media. But one of the things again, I would urge, you know, whether it is the Qatari authorities or whether it is FIFA and Mr. Infantino commenting about Europeans, I wish he would look at some of the coverage from around the global south. Uh, because there are actors from around the global south, and I wonder if it is his bias that results in him listening to only what the Western media is saying. Perhaps he could pick up some of what the media is saying from our parts of the world too. (laughs) Yeah, I fully
0: agree. And um, just to add to what you're saying, from what I saw as well, there were some quite uh, bizarre reports uh, kind of coming out. Um, I remember there was one in particular which was talking about um I mean not to say that there's that it's not true but it was kind of saying that uh former kind of migrant workers who built the stadiums are now uh watching the match uh and enjoying football and that's not to say that people can't enjoy football of course and that wasn't a thing um but I mean even something that Padra noted in his report is that uh you know economic concerns took such central kind of prominence and for Um, at least a lot of the reports you know that took central focus so to instead have a report which was uh, just kind of a very kind of puff piece kind of thing saying that uh, they are enjoying watching the match after building the stadium um, was a little bit bizarre (laughs) for me to read Um, (laughs) but yeah and um, I also find the one about how just having the uh, having the World Cup in Qatar is basically amount to decolonization, at least in the way it was framed. Uh, found it a little bizarre, and um, kind of in line with what uh, the FIFA chief was saying as well. Um, but as you said, I think it's uh, just just underscores the importance of uh, trying to kind of read uh, content more from the Global South, which is more. Um, kind of aware of these kinds of issues, particularly since so many of the workers come from our uh, region. Um, So yeah, I think um, I have pretty much uh, completed all of the questions that uh, we had um, kind of planned to ask uh, as well as a couple of uh, questions from people who are listening as well. Um, So I think we can uh, wind up now. but um, just wanted to thank everybody, including Badra, for listening. Um, Badra, we're really sorry you couldn't uh, join and speak because we really would have loved to get more into detail about your report for the New York Times. Um, particularly, you know, for example, uh, the points you raised on worker deaths and on uh, kind of how migrant workers kind of contribute to the economy and something that's very relevant to Sri Lanka as well. Um, so, but thank you for listening throughout and um, thank you to everybody who joined and listened. Um, do kind of follow um, our website, um to follow our work. Um, we'll probably upload uh, this space as well um, in the following week. Um, thank you, one, uh, for joining us and thank you, Namrat for joining us and Bhakra as well. Uh, good night, everyone. Thank you and thanks Himal.